show uh, called America's Funniest Home Videos. And uh, if you're older than 25, or I guess they are on YouTube, so maybe kids have seen them, you know, I don't know. But if you're older than 25, there's a good chance that you may have actually watched an episode uh, when, it, when it aired uh, back in the day. You might remember the show. Um, you know, people from across the country would send in through the mail their, their VHS tapes of, uh, you know, their home videos, hoping to have their, their home videos featured on the show. And one year they did a Christmas edition, uh, at least one year they did. And uh, it mainly involved, you know, just filming and watching the reactions of, of kids as they, you know, scrambled to open their presents and their funny reaction to, to that. And one clip uh, that I watched showed a girl, she comes downstairs and uh, she finds her parents waiting for her, apparently, you know, with, uh, you know, VHS recorder in hand, and they're urging her to look at all the presents that Santa had brought for her. And her response was, was awesome. She's just kind of in shock. And she says, so I still got presents, even though I was bad. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, that's a wise little girl. Uh, <laughs> you know, she put two and two together kind of on the spot with the innocence that only a child could, uh, could look cute doing, you know. If a grown-up does it, it's like, whoa, you know, what's going on here? Um, but I doubt that she realized at the time that she was making a profoundly true statement about the real meaning of Christmas. And as we've seen over the course of this study, over the course of the past couple of weeks, the, the Christmas season, ultimately, it's a celebration of the gospel. And I suppose that it would be at least somewhat true to boil the gospel down to this. You've been bad. Um, we've all been bad. But God, nevertheless, blessed us with a gift that none of us deserve. There was a second video clip um, that I found interesting. Uh, and it was a, a young boy, Christmas morning, you know, he comes downstairs, he sees this huge present next to the tree with his name on it. And so he, he goes, he runs over to it and he's frantically tearing the paper off, uh, the wrapping paper off. And he, he starts screaming and dancing. Oh yeah, it's just what I, just what I always wanted. And, uh, after a few seconds, he comes down and he looks back over to it and he's kind of got a confused look on his face. And he says, what is it? <laughs> well, the Bible tells us all about the birth of, uh, of Jesus, how it was proclaimed by an army of angels to the lowly shepherds who quickly went to worship the newborn king. And to this day, it's a message that's proclaimed around the world. And yet, as we saw last week, from the world's perspective... The Christmas message, because ultimately the Christmas message is the gospel. The Christmas message is foolishness to the world. It's exactly what they need, but their response is almost as if to say, what is it? It's foolishness to them. It's absurd, according to the world's way of thinking, to think that God would actually humble himself, taking on flesh to become like one of us, only to die on a sinner's cross. But if, there, you know, if there's one thing that's kind of funny about the relationship between wisdom and foolishness, it, it's that the world views foolishness as wisdom, and they view wisdom as foolishness. The wisdom of God is perceived by the world as foolishness, and their foolishness they perceive as wisdom. 
And while the world sees the incarnation as, uh, as foolishness, we have to remember that Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. We looked at this last week, but I just want to touch on it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, he said, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, we're not going to be in 1 Corinthians this week. We're actually going to be in Isaiah 53. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, Over the course of the past couple weeks, we've looked at Christmas from the perspective of John the Baptist. And last week, we looked at Christmas from the perspective of the world. Today, we're going to look at Christmas from the perspective of God. See, the incarnation of Christ, Christ taking on flesh, wasn't something that God just kind of thought of and decided to do on a whim. It wasn't something that he, he did on a, on a moment's notice. It was selfless, it was self-sacrificial, and it wasn't something that he did just on a moment's notice because all these things were planned out. All these things were planned out from eternity. It's not that things weren't turning out as he had planned when Jesus came to take on flesh. No, it was something he had planned from eternity past, which means that this whole sermon is really an attempt to understand something that our finite minds can't even begin to wrap around. One of the toughest things for us to even try to do is to imagine God planning from eternity to do something. Because our minds just can't think like that. We've never seen or done anything infinite. Uh, You know, it's impossible for the finite to, to grasp to fully grasp the infinite. But God knew from all of eternity exactly how it would all work out. He planned every detail perfectly. And yet while it all fit perfectly into his plans, into his purposes, he chose a very difficult path. He he chose the path that leads to the cross, which involved being despised which involved being rejected by men. And while that would all seem like foolishness to the world, you know, if they were going to come up with a plan for, for God to, to take on flesh and live like one of us, they, they wouldn't do it this way. They wouldn't have chosen for him to take the road to Calvary from the very beginning. But the reality is that that is the wisdom and the power of God unto salvation. In his wisdom... From the very beginning, from eternity, he had this plan where he would make humanity to glorify and enjoy intimate fellowship with him forever. If you've ever read the Westminster Confession, it asks, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's, what's the purpose that we're here for? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And yet, from the very beginning of humanity, man has rejected God's love and has rejected, therefore, even his very purpose for being created, for existing. It might appear that this would have thwarted God's plans and his purposes for having created humanity, but in his wisdom, God had a bigger picture in mind. He had a plan for accomplishing his plans and purposes despite man's continual resistance. 
And that purpose was realized on the first Christmas when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, stepped down from eternity, taking on flesh, humbly becoming a man. In Isaiah chapter 53, we're foretold of this immaculately wise plan. Isaiah writes this, starting in verses 1 and 2. He says, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is an amazing part of God's plan, which again is so contrary to to human thinking and human wisdom, human convention. Part of God's plan for the incarnation, was that Christ wouldn't be this really good-looking guy. He wouldn't be handsome. He wouldn't look awesome. He wouldn't look like an earthly king. He wouldn't have anything in his appearance at all that would draw people to him. That isn't how he's portrayed in art. Uh, that's, not how he, that's certainly not how he's portrayed in, in media. I mean, if you've ever seen uh, a movie about Jesus, um, you know, or his life, his ministry, you know, whether it's a movie or a TV show, you know, the guys who usually play Jesus, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they had a, a second job on the side, you know, as Calvin Klein models or something, you know. Um, but Jesus had no such appeal to the human eye. He was homely. He was unbecoming. There was nothing about the way that he looked that would have drawn or attracted people to himself. We recently had a, a pastor of a, a very large megachurch here in the Seattle area who wouldn't let certain people get in front of his congregation, wouldn't let certain people preach uh, because he thought that they were too homely. In fact, he felt that he was the best one to preach, and part of his reasoning was that he felt that he was more attractive than any of the other pastors that he had on staff at that church. True story. And that's just one example of how contrary to God's thinking, man's ways are. God's plan was that in the incarnation, there would be nothing about Christ, the way he looked, his form. There was nothing that would draw a large following. And Isaiah tells us that he would be like a root that came out of dry ground. What does that mean? Well, a root doesn't come out of dry ground. So it would be an act of God, first of all. And we also have to understand that Isaiah is speaking in spiritual terms here, not physical terms. He wasn't going to be brought up in a time or in a place where true faith in God was found on a widespread basis. Rather, he was going to be born into a place that was covered in spiritual death, where spiritual death was rampant, was everywhere. It would be a place where spiritual death was widespread and prevalent. People weren't seeking God. People weren't faithful to God. These were the conditions that Jesus would be born into. The plan from all of eternity was that Jesus would stand out in stark contrast to those around him, not because of the way he looked, but because of his faith in God. Not because of his appearance, but because of his godly character. Humanity would never have conceived such a plan. But in God's wisdom, 
This is what he decreed from all eternity. This is the wisdom of Christmas. This is God's plan from eternity. Isaiah continues, writing in 53 verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as, not, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Humanity despised Jesus. They rejected Jesus just like they had always despised and rejected God. God wasn't exaggerating when he said, no one seeks God. No one seeks God. To this day, Christ is still despised and rejected by men. And that's what we saw last week. That's why the message of Christmas is foolishness to the world. And one of the things that we hear a lot around Christmas time every year is that the wise still seek him. But what did we see last week? There's no one who's wise. There's no one who's wise. Paul asked, where is the wise? The implication being that there is none. Nobody's wise enough to seek him. So while it might be true that the wise still seek him, we need to understand that nobody's wise. That creates a little bit of a paradox, doesn't it? Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And where did that lead him? It didn't lead him to God. It led him away from God. It led him to seek worldly gain. No one is wise and apart from God's redemptive and regenerating work within the heart of a man. No one seeks God. And so Jesus, the plan from eternity was that Jesus, from his birth, would be despised and rejected. And it was like that on the first Christmas, just like it is to this day. And Isaiah tells us next that this child born in a manger would grow to be a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. Again, totally contrarian thinking here. Man would never have devised such a plan. And I believe that this reveals something about God's character. He'd always, from the beginning, been despised and rejected by men. And he knew that he always would be. And yet, while he had all of eternity to maybe, you know, grow a little bit indifferent toward man's rejection, you know, after a while, you know, if you get rejected by people, you, you just start saying, okay, whatever, I, I don't care. You know, they can reject me. I don't care. And you get a little bit hard-hearted. But I think this reveals that he never did, that God never did. It still grieved him. Why would he be a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief? Because he was despised and rejected. These are the low and humble conditions that Jesus willfully stepped into. That he willfully submitted himself to. And these are the reasons that he was not held in high esteem by men. And yet, as the old hymn so correctly proclaims, Man of sorrows, what a name For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The prophet continues, Isaiah continues, verses 4 to 6. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
and he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The images that the Bible gives us of the type of rejection that God has faced by man are revolting. They they are shocking. We've all sinned. We've all pursued idols. We've all done what seems right in accordance with, with our own eyes, just like judges, right? That was the theme of judges. We all do what we think is right in our own eyes. Humanity has rejected God. Even God's own people have gone astray. And yet he's portrayed in Hosea as the husband, the loving husband who goes after and redeems the wife he loves despite her unfaithfulness. We can be sure that Isaiah isn't talking about all of humanity here. The chastisement of Christ didn't bring peace to all people. It only brings peace to those who place saving faith in this one who would be stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That's what would bring them peace. We have to confess when we look at this that it's true, that we have all gone our own ways, that we have all sinned, that we all have turned away from God, and we still, there's still part of us that resists Him. It's our flesh. And we have to confess that we are lower and that we are worse than a bunch of pigs who will run around wild all day long, but they'll at least return to the trough in time for dinner. And yet, in this child born in a manger was the fullness of the Godhead. He would grow up to refer to himself as the good shepherd who went looking for his own sheep. The sheep don't look for the shepherd. The shepherd looks for the sheep. Jesus himself would say in John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, he'd say, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. No one seeks for God. All have gone astray. But God seeks his people his sheep. In the wisdom of God from eternity, the plan was not for Christ to be born into or to live an easy or pleasant or wealthy or luxurious life in any way, shape, or form. It was going to involve hardship, brokenheartedness, grief, sorrow, It involved emotional suffering. It involved physical suffering. And from the very beginning, this is how his life was. Our modern era of a manger is far too cute. I I love manger scenes as much as anybody else. uh, I'm kind of in awe of them when when I really sit there and think about it. But the reality of the conditions that he was born into are really more revolting than they are cute. 
the Christmas story is a story of brutality. A child who was born into a world that would reject him, and he knew from eternity it was going to reject him, it was going to abuse him, it was going to hate him. The plan was that he would be a child whose purpose in life, uh, in being born, was to die. And in the process of dying, to bear the wrath of God against billions upon billions upon billions of sins. More sin than any of us could count in a hundred lifetimes combined. The plan was that he would be the savior of a people who on their own would never have sought him and could never have come to him on their own accord. You see, God's gift of sending a savior sends a very clear message to us. We need one. He sent one because we need one. And we need one because without one, we would be lost. We would be dead in our sin. There are only two types of people, people who are dead in their sin and people who are dead to sin. We would be dead in our sin, eternally separated from God without a Savior. The notion of God himself being our Savior confronts us with the truth about how serious sin is. It confronts us with the truth about ourselves and our need for somebody else to reconcile us to God because we're not good enough. That's a harsh truth. The world into which the Savior was born was cold, dark, and hostile, both physically and spiritually. Jesus didn't look like a king. He didn't look like a savior. He didn't act like the world's idea of a savior. And this was all in accordance with the perfect and unfathomable wisdom of God from eternity. John would say this in John chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. He'd say the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He's talking about Christmas. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In his wisdom, he abandoned the safety, the security, the comfort of heaven. He set aside many of his eternal attributes, divine attributes. And the story as it plays out in time, not in eternity, but in time, it begins in this smelly manger. And it leads straight through the, through the cross to the grave. He was born in a place that his earthly parents didn't own. His body would be buried in a tomb that he didn't own. He chose to live the life, basically, of a refugee in the very world that he himself had created. And when we look at Christmas through the eyes of God, we have to understand that this was all by design. This is all the way he knew it had to be. We have to understand that none of this took God by surprise. There is no plan B with God. There's only plan A. His plans never fail. It was like this by design. 
It was done in accordance with his own great wisdom, his eternal, unsearchable wisdom from before the very foundations of the earth. Everything that the prophet Isaiah had foretold so many years prior to the birth of Christ would come to pass perfectly. And Isaiah would continue writing this, verses 7 and 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. This is the life he chose. This is the life he he planned from eternity. This is what he chose. And this is why when he was accused before the authorities of wrongdoing, he would neither do nor say anything in his own defense. Was it unjust to crucify him? Absolutely. The charges were bogus. But he didn't say anything to defend himself. Instead, he would just stand in silence. Peter would say this in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As followers of Christ, I think that's a pretty good example for us to follow. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. That's, that's our flesh instinct, isn't it? When somebody hurts us, we think, how can I get them back? And you might want to ask, okay, well, what would Jesus do? There you go. That's what he did. He did not revile in return. Even when he suffered, he didn't threaten And of course, when he says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, he's talking about the Father who judges justly. Jesus was only concerned with what the Father thought. And his only concern in all of life, every single moment, was to do the will of the Father. This child who was born of a virgin womb wouldn't grow up to face death for his own transgressions. He'd face death for the transgressions of his people, of everyone who would place saving faith in him. Paul would write this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He'd say, For our sake he made, him who, uh, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The wisdom of the world could and would never find a way to reconcile man to God. But God's plan from all of eternity would be to reconcile sinners to himself in this way. He would trade his own righteousness for the sins of his people. His righteousness would be imputed to his people. Their sin would be imputed to him in the most unfair trade ever made. People accuse God of being unfair all the time. For whatever reason, you know, they come up with all kinds of reasons to say God's unfair. Okay, indeed, this is, this is extremely unfair because we never deserved, we never earned the privilege or the right 
to be blessed in this manner. That's what grace is all about. It would have been fair to send all of us to hell. But in his wisdom and his love, God had a way of reconciling sinners to himself without compromising his own justice. So here's the paradox. Grace is unwarranted and thus it's unfair. And yet God is nevertheless perfectly just. With worldly thinking, we think that, you know, everybody who commits a crime, you know, they, they, they deserve to receive the penalty due to them for their wrongdoing. But in God's wisdom, he planned to impute the sin that we were all guilty of to himself in the flesh. The wisdom of God was not to punish his people for their sin, not to punish a bunch of sinners for their sin. The wisdom of God was to turn sinners into saints by imputing the guilt of sin upon this man who was born in a lowly manger. This is why Isaiah would continue by writing this, verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of God, it was the will of the Lord to crush him He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." This was the will of the Lord. This was the will of God. I've read a lot of books and blogs and stuff, people claiming that the idea was to crown Jesus as king of an earthly kingdom. But the Jews rejected him, so they had to change their plans. That's not exactly what I see the Bible saying. No, the will of God was to free his people by imputing the sins of his people to Christ and to impute the righteousness of Christ to his people in order that many would be accounted as righteous. This is supernatural. This is a miracle. This is something that defies reason and logic. Something that only God could do because only God is sinless. Only God has righteousness to impute to us. In fact, it is possibly the greatest miracle he ever performed. By the power of his word, he he spoke the universe into existence. He created the universe and everything in the universe with the power of his word. But by the power of his will and his work on Calvary, he created saints out of sinners. Those two things are, are opposite They're diametrically opposed. The message of Christmas tells us that even though we've all been bad, God nevertheless sent an amazing gift into the world. Salvation for all who would put saving faith in Christ the Savior. Isaiah says, The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. All the purposes of God 
would be accomplished through this child who was born on that first Christmas morning. God knew exactly what he was doing. And there was nothing, and there is nothing, and there never will be anything that could possibly thwart his eternal plans. With the new Star Wars movie coming out this week, I don't know if anybody's as excited as I am. I, I, I love Star Wars. Uh, I'm reminded of the, the title of the first movie, uh, Episode Four: A New Hope. Um, it was actually the first, mo- it's not the first movie that I went to see, but it's the first one that I actually remember going to see it. And that might be because I think we probably went and saw it 10 to 20 times. Uh, I, I just, I loved it when I was a kid. Um, I saw it several times. And if you've, if you've seen the movie, you know how it starts. There's this ship that shows up on the screen. And uh, as they, they pan out a little bit, you see that it's being chased um, by this second ship that's so big, it not only dwarfs the, the first ship, makes that thing look small, it almost blocks the view of the planet that they are right next to, making everything look puny. And yet this small ship was the only hope for the Rebel Alliance. And it turns out to be a theme throughout the movie, small things bringing hope. Darth Vader stands a good, what, I don't know, foot, foot and a half taller than, than Princess Leia. Then R2-D2 and, and C-3PO, they go to Tatooine and they're dwarfed by the landscape. You know, you see these little two dots and it's like, yeah, those are them. They're carrying this, this message of hope. They deliver the message to Obi-Wan Kenobi in the form of a, just this, this little hologram. Luke Skywalker eventually gets called into action, but even he is a little short for a stormtrooper. If there's one theological truth that runs through the Star Wars story, and I understand there's some kind of weird mystical stuff in there, but if there's one theological truth that runs through the Star Wars story, it's that hope often comes in small, unexpected ways. The birth of Christ is a perfect example. The birth of Christ was the birth of a kingdom which would never fall and which would never be broken. It would be lived out and experienced in unexpected ways by unexpected people. Paul said to the church in Corinth, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. These were unexpected people. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The kingdom of God would be unlike any human kingdom because it would be invisible. It wouldn't be established through force. To this very day, Christ reigns over his kingdom from heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. The will of the Lord still prospers in his hand. God had a plan that would look like nothing of any significance on the surface. That's what Christmas is all about. This plan. The unfolding of this great plan. Christmas from God's perspective would be described by the Apostle Paul this way in Philippians chapter 2. He said, Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't hold on to it. He let go of it to come down. 
and be like one of us, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Christmas, from God's perspective, starts from eternity past. And like a father who who couldn't wait until Christmas morning to give this amazing gift to his kids for Christmas, this plan is gradually revealed piece by piece to his people through the ages, through the, throughout the Old Testament. He gives piece by piece just little, little hints of what to expect, how it's going to unfold to the prophets. He sends a Savior as a child who's humble and appears to be just ordinary. Just ordinary, but he's actually the king and the creator of the universe. And to this day, his plans continue to unfold in accordance with his sovereign will. Who would have thought, who would have, who would have believed that this child born in a manger would be changing the, the lives and the hearts of people 2,000 years later? God did. God believed. He, he didn't just believe, he knew what was going to happen. He had a plan. He had a purpose. He knew what he was doing. He has always had a sovereign plan, and he was faithful to send this gift to the world in spite of its rebellion and in spite of its disbelief in order to redeem for himself a people. The Apostle John would say this. We saw this in our study of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's what Christmas is all about. It pleased God to do this. It pleased God to send his son into the world that he so loved in order that through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, his people may live with the confident knowledge that they are loved by God. The true message of Christmas might seem like foolishness to the world, but it is the wisdom of God. And from God's perspective, the message of Christmas is hope. The message of Christmas from God's perspective is love. The message of Christmas is ultimate wisdom and the power to save. The message of Christmas is the gospel. Scandalous. It's totally scandalous. So what do we do with this message? What do we do with this message of Christmas from from God's perspective and all of the implications it carries? It tells us that God is faithful. It tells us that God can be trusted. It tells us that God loves us. It tells us that we can love God, that we should love God. We should see that he's trustworthy and faithful. And when we see that, 
the result should be, if we truly see that, if we truly grasp it, the result should be that we increase our resolve to live humbly before him, under his authority, for his glory, trusting in him fully, enjoying him forever, because that is the purpose of our very existence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, as, we, uh, as we reflect on your perspective of Christmas, Lord, I pray that we would see the demonstration of supreme humility by your Son. And that as we become more and more like him, Lord, you would teach us to be humble before you. Teach us to be humble before you and to be obedient to your will. Teach us to trust in you, in your plans, in your purposes, in your sovereignty over everything and every moment in creation. That we may live confidently in faith before you for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper